Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, I have an interview with composer Charles Bernstein. Mr. Bernstein has composed music scores for A Nightmare on Elm Street, White Lightning, The Entity, and Mr. Majestic. Mr. Majestic will be shown Saturday, March 9th, at the Downtown Public Library in the main auditorium at 2 p.m. More later, on to the interview. Okay. First question, uh, you wrote, most composers I know say there is no contest. Scoring the job is the hard part, meaning getting hired. And how did you get the job for Mr. Majestic? That's real interesting, uh, William. Actually, you used the word scoring as a verb, and it does have two meanings. Scoring the job, meaning getting the job, and scoring the job, meaning writing the notes, writing the music for the job. And I agree that the hard part is the first one, scoring the job, meaning actually getting hired. This was very early in my career. The amazing thing is the guys on the other end of the hiring, that would be uh, Walter Mirisch and his company, were like gods to me. You know, I would just not have expected on my kind of second theatrical feature film that got some legs that I would be working for Walter Mirisch. So that part of it was kind of miraculous for me. I remember reading in the Los Angeles Times shortly before that job came through an article, you know, kind of a PR article about them shooting this movie, and it, I thought it was Mr. Majestique. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't know how to pronounce it, but I just remember seeing this and thinking, wow, that's kind of an odd name, Mr. Majestique, and Charlie Bronson and all that. And let me think how this kind of came about. I had done White Lightning, which was pretty successful as a you know, kind of an offbeat, not typical Hollywood movie. In those days, I guess we didn't think so much about big studio and indie, but White Lightning was more like an indie picture, even though it was a studio picture. And so I had a little bit of credibility based on White Lightning. It did well. I was kind of a new musical voice, so I had been tested a little bit from the standpoint of people who, you know, invest in movies. I think the real risk was White Lightning when I got hired. But Mr. Majestic was still a big jump for me in terms of being kind of legitimized. I had a manager and an agent. I couldn't exactly tell you who the agent was at this point. The manager was someone named Leonard Granger, who also managed Jerry Fielding, who was one of the most undersung composers that I can think of. Just an absolutely wonderful composer passed away quite some time ago, but, you know, his legacy was some of the uh, Sam Peckinpah movies and so forth. Anyway, Leonard was able to get me some kind of a interview with somebody, not with the Mirishes, but uh, somebody who, you know, was connected to the process, to the studio, and I was able to kind of advance along, and I think Walter at the time was looking for someone the movie was offbeat, and I think he didn't want to go with a kind of conventional score from a conventional Hollywood composer, so I think I had that on my side. 
from that point, I guess uh, he took a risk, and I was grateful. Okay. You said when scoring a motion picture, you stated one tries to find a key, a key to unlock something dramatically. It's a film composer's job to find a musical, emotional key that will open a door and let the audience into something they need to feel or experience. And like I say, I'm showing Mr. Majestic. And what was the musical, emotional key for this movie? That's a really good question. And again, this key is one of those words like scoring, you know, that can have more than one meaning. And it's interesting that you grabbed that word as well. There's the key of the movie, you know, is it a minor key, kind of sad, is it a major key, that kind of thing. And then there's this key as in putting a key in a lock. And that's always been one of the mysteries to me, is some composers, the ones that I really admire, seem to find some something that unlocks a secret inside the movie. I've always held that belief and tried to find something that was unique to that particular movie and not to any others. In the case of Mr. Majestic, somehow, uh, last night I was having uh, dinner with one of my sons and I said, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be talking to some folks down in Nashville about uh, Mr. Majestic. And he was really young when I had done that score and he, he hummed me, noisy restaurant, you know, he hummed me the, the whole theme. And I thought, wow, God, he remembers that after all these years. And it made me think that the, the music in Majestic did kind of stand as something different from any other picture I had done. It was easy to remember, at least the theme was, the style was somehow wedded to this Bronson character, this southwestern locale. And how I found that, I'm not sure. Sometimes I approach it through instruments. But honestly, I'm a bit baffled because the main theme, which is kind of in a minor key, is not characteristic of the location it's a little bit characteristic of that way that Charlie Bronson is in all the movies I've done with him. I think I've done about three, and he's always very low-keyed. He's not one to wear his emotions. His emotions are, are very cool temperature-wise. He's not hot emotions like you know some actors. And so the music captured a little bit of sadness in him because the key, in the other sense of the word, minor key, kind of touches on that sadness of Bronson's character, almost shut down, like he feels like almost in a bit of PTSD or something, like maybe something happened earlier in his life that made him very protected, always in a state of protection. So, In any case, so that wasn't characteristic of the locale, nor was this sort of sad, romantic flugelhorn theme that also surfaces I'm trying to think. There was another thematic element. There's the excitement music. There's the suspenseful, kind of creepy, tense music. There's this bum, ba, bum, ba, bum, this minor keyed opening. And then it's followed by these major chords that are very assertive. I hope I'm not going on too much. About oh, no. Uh-uh. Okay. And then 
there's this southwestern acoustic guitar thing. I had met a young man, now we're all old men, but he was a young man who uh, was Greek and played the uh, bazooki, which is a Greek traditional instrument, and I'm a big, big fan of Greek music and music of the Balkans and all that. And I said, gee, can we take this bazooki and, you know, kind of give it a bit of southwestern finger-picking guitar, a little more cowboy kind of element, but playing on the bazooki, that became a major color in the locale. So there are maybe four or five elements, keys, inside this score. One touches on his character, one touches on the locale, one touches on this evil El Lettieri guy, you know, who was in The Godfather, plays kind of the heavy that would be the more suspenseful, tense music. And then there was this uh, rip-roaring kind of chase stuff, the bus chase and all that sort of thing. So I was kind of combining orchestra with traditional instruments, which I did on White Lightning, but in a very different way. So I like the score to Mr. Majestic, and for me, it finds that key into the picture. Whether it does for others, I can't say, but for me, it feels like a score that could only be for that movie, and that's kind of what I shoot for. Okay. Mm-hmm. On Mr. Majestic, the film editor was Ralphie Winters. Oh, yeah. The film editor on Ben-Hur and King Solomon's Minds. And yeah. What's the working relationship between a film editor and composer? You know, he also had an assistant editor that you apparently interviewed, Frank Uriosti. Uh-huh. And Frank was the the editor on The Entity, but he was the assistant to Ralph on Mr. Majestic. And a wonderful guy. Ralph was just a prince. Here's a guy who I considered, again, you know, part of that Hollywood royalty that I didn't feel entitled to rub shoulders with, but found myself working with the most gentle, kind, supportive, helpful kind of guy and just knowing that he had edited the chariot race and Ben-Hur and that kind of stuff, he understood music, but also understood that generation of great Hollywood filmmakers. I don't know, they just had a, a know-how and a respect for the process. He was very, very respectful, even though I was kind of a newbie. He was just, I can't say enough about him. Some years later, I he wrote a book, by the way, a little... A very slender little book about film editing. Some years later, I invited him to a conference along with the editor of All That Jazz, a guy named Alan, whose Hi. last name? Uh, yes, yeah. And I believe one other editor, maybe it was just the two of them, to this. Oh, it was Don Camborn. Uh, who is the wonderful editor on so many things, including the groundbreaking Peter Fonda movie, Easy Rider, with, yeah, uh, Born to be Wild is the title and all that. Anyway, we had a conference about film music, and I invited these three guys to talk to the film composing community about editing and how it was uh, for them as editors to work with us as composers. And Ralph was was one of the voices in that uh, conference. Anyway, suffice to say that he was just ideal as an editor to work with. And editors are really important to composers, as I'm sure you, you know. We're at the 
mercy of the editor and the cinematographer and the director, and we can only work with what we're given. And Ralph, Frankie Ariosti, and so many of these great editors were willing to even sometimes, you know, give us a little more at the tail end of a shot in a picture so the music can kind of gracefully ease off, whereas when they didn't have music in there, they cut it tighter, you know. So sometimes they'll even accommodate. In White Lightning, I found that they were willing to put back entire scenes, the entire scene in White Lightning where Burt Reynolds runs through the fields chased by hounds in the beginning when he's trying to escape from a work farm. That whole scene wasn't there, and I had asked if I'd said something like, gee, I wish there was more here to work with. And they said, well, we took something out, and we can try putting it back and see how it works with music. So sometimes the editor, of course, with the permission of director and so forth, can really make a difference for a composer. And a good editor really is an asset. Ralph was all of that. You mentioned White Lightning, and Quentin Tarantino has used White Lightning theme in both Kill Bill and Inglorious Bastards. Is there a story behind this? If there is, <laughs> it comes from Quentin, because I, when Quentin started using my music, I hadn't met him. And so I guess he... I, I saw a film clip of him being interviewed by uh, Elvis Mitchell, that I didn't see until some time after Inglorious Bastards that explained a little bit to me what his thinking was. He had seen White Lightning in, maybe it was his hometown, I can't quite remember, at a drive-in theater when he was too young to drive, but he went into the theater. He found the opening to White Lightning very moving, very creepy, very effective, it was directed by Joe Sargent, and Joe just, I think, really created an incredible opening for White Lightning and an opening for me to supply some music. And so Quentin remembered it from when he was a boy. And same with The Entity. He had remembered a music cue. He's got this amazing historical memory about using music and other things, you know, memory for different setups in movies and shots and techniques and so forth. Anyway, so I guess he really remembered certain sections of White Lightning, the opening, and a certain moment when Burt Reynolds stalks out just before the chase I referred to earlier. And he repurposed those things. And I got an invitation through his music supervisor to go to the premiere. And I still hadn't met him at the premiere of Inglorious Bastards. But I was amazed at how much of the music he used and how well it worked in such a different environment. You know, European 1940s instead of 1970s set in the south of the U.S. So I was pretty amazed, but I still hadn't met him. And then we were at an event, and my wife was with me, and she said, I think that's Quentin Tarantino over there. Why don't you say hi to him, and, you know? I said, ah, oh, he's not going to remember me. He doesn't know me. So I was kind of a little embarrassed, but I went up to him and introduced myself. And I was just shocked that he started talking about the music, knew who I was. He was so friendly, and it was just wonderful. He started talking to me about his thoughts and what did I think about him using this music here and that music there. And so that's the first time I met him, and that was well after the fact. So that's how that all came about. Okay. 
Um, you wrote, art often thrives on limitation. Could you give an example of where you were scoring a movie where you didn't have enough time or money, but yet you really thrived? Hmm. <laughs> I'm caught in my own trap here because I can't say... You mentioned time and money. That's two points of a triangle. Of fast, good, and cheap is the composer's triangle. And we say to producers, fast, good, and cheap, you can pick any two. We can do two of those three, but we need at least something to hang our hat on. So you can have it fast, but it won't be necessarily good nor cheap, or you can have it cheap, but it won't be good and fast. Anyway, you get the picture. So I'm thinking of another Charlie Bronson movie that's relevant to what your question was, it was called The Sea Wolf with Christopher Reeve, the guy who played Superman. They were the two leads. It takes place on an old ship, turn of the century, like 1903 or something like that. And I got a call from Andrew Fennedy, the producer, A.J. Fennedy. And he's one of those great old-time Hollywood producer kind of guys, you know, very bold guy. And he called up and he said, Charlie... We're doing the Sea Wolf. Can you give me Corn Gold? And Corn Gold, of course, scored the original Sea Wolf, and it's one of the greatest scores ever written. It, it took months, and it was done with a great symphony orchestra and all that. And I said, Well, AJ, do you have a budget for an orchestra? He said, No, we don't have any money at all. You have to do it on some kind of stuff on a synthesizer. I said, Well, that's going to make it hard to do Corn Gold. There's no money. And he said, Oh, and we have about a week. So I thought, Oh, God, there's no money, there's no time. The third leg of that triangle is in jeopardy, which is any good. I really contemplated not taking the job because I didn't see a way out of it. But, as you say, limitations of time, money, and so forth, I did take it on. I simulated orchestra with what we had in those days. For We didn't have these big sample libraries that we have today, but you know, I had a few synths that could imitate this or that instrument, and some of them were more convincing than others, and I just kind of relied on those instruments that sounded most realistic and somehow pulled it together, no budget, no time, and it got an Emmy nomination. So sometimes it works out, but I don't recommend that. I was kind of fighting the odds on that one, and it could just as well have gone south completely, but it somehow worked out. You've composed scores for several horror movies, Hicks, Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby, Cujo, Deadly Friend, The Entity, and of course, Nightmare on Elm Street. And composer Jerry Goldsmith once said he said he enjoyed scoring horror movies because it gave him a chance to be avant-garde and to try new things. When you score a horror movie, do you find this to be true? Yeah, Jerry was one of those guys that I worship, and yes, what he's saying is true. He's referring to very specific compositional techniques that aren't relevant to romances or other genres of film, like clusters of strings characteristic of Penderewski or Ligeti, European modernist composers from mid-century. He's referring to that kind of thing. And that we can only do in horror movies. But I like to think that what Jerry said is also true in the other genres, that we don't have to be constricted by the previous film scores in a genre. Like, I, I feel Mr. Majestic 
if it were to be done in a more traditional manner, for instance, might have just a traditional sound, a Hollywood score-sounding way of approaching it. So one can approach non-horror films in ways I used, for instance, in Mr. Majestic, an instrument called an ektara, which is a single-stringed, I don't know whether it's Indonesian, some exotic instrument that I stumbled on in Emil Richards' warehouse. He's the percussionist that we all used in those days. He had a vast warehouse of exotic instruments. And when I attached it to an echoplex, it created this kind of wow, wow, you know, weird sound that sounded like a plucked string on a dobro or a acoustic guitar gone crazy. So sometimes we can apply experimental or odd things in things that aren't horror movies just to expand the vocabulary musically and not be too constricted. But what Jerry said is absolutely true. There are things we can only do in horror movies and explorations we can only do in the context of those kinds of horrific uh, emotional situations. Okay, and I was listening to the bonus tracks on the Entity soundtrack, Mm -hmm. and you were discussing composing the attack music, and you said you began with electronically altered low grand piano notes and live kick drum, and then added a cymbal effect, then added a blended electric guitar, then added a rapper tom-tom. And just when I heard this, excuse my limited knowledge, it just sounded like you were like a chef in a kitchen. (laughs) Is this how you compose? Well, I'll try a little bit of this. It's just a process of adding and taking away. Yeah, it's gumbo. You know, you couldn't have picked a better analogy. It's standing in the kitchen. I cook all the time. I have this big black iron pot. You know, and I know I can get about three pounds of chicken thighs in there to make a good stew. And you know what I mean? You stand there and, uh, okay, maybe a little cumin, a little this, a little that, and you taste it as you go. Yeah, that pretty much uh, characterizes the process for me. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Okay. In your book, Film Music and Everything Else, you wrote this. You said you used to find Alex North, Elma Bernstein, David Raskin, and others at Cafe Figueroa, and sometimes they were so animated you could get an education. And could you talk about this type of education? Because it sounds like Paris in the 20s to me. It it sounds like, I'm sorry. It uh, sounds like Paris in the 20s. Oh, Paris in the 20s. That's great. Yeah, that's from an article. I've written 105 articles or published essays, I guess you'd say. And each one is kind of taking a different view of life and film music, hence the name of that book, Film Music and Everything Else. I'm just doing the collected essays that includes that book and all of the essays that followed and preceded it. And that particular essay was me making a plea for the old-fashioned way of learning our craft, which is instead of relying on the classroom to teach us and somebody like me coming in and, you know, filling people's heads with what we have to say, to encourage young people to do kind of what I did and what a lot of these other composers that you mentioned did. They didn't necessarily learn film scoring in a classroom. They went out, and I call it the one-person university of the streets, And you can find, like I found my conducting lessons by just going to the Hollywood Bowl uh, 
visitor rehearsals, when, when the orchestra would be rehearsing in, in the morning for the evening concert, you could just sit there with the music and watch the greatest guest conductors in the world rehearse the orchestra. So you learn conducting, not in a classroom, by going to an orchestra and then playing in an orchestra and watching the conductor. Or you learn the film score by going to the studios where the scores are that the great composers wrote and look at their handwriting in the music, study the scores. I did that just by going to MGM and asking Harry Lejewski or Bob Bornstein at Paramount or whoever, who are the librarians, just, you know, I'm a young guy, I'm studying this stuff, could I see the scores? You know, or Hank Mancini's scores were at UCLA in the library there, and you could just learn that way. And the thing you referred to is like the teacher's. And these guys were heroes of mine. They were all members of the Motion Picture Academy. And in those days, the Motion Picture Academy was a funky little building on Melrose near Doheny in L.A. And there was a place called Cafe Figaro next door. And so they would go to Cafe Figaro after these meetings, and they'd be all heated about talking about film music and Oscar eligibility and all that type of thing. And I could just go there and see these guys and say, I'm a young film composer, aspiring film composer. And sometimes they talk with me a little bit. They're like heroes and gods to me, you know. And so I'm, in the article, I'm kind of recommending people just use your wits, go out, learn this stuff, go to the movie theater, go over and over again to see movies that you love the score, figure out how they work, go find the music, go find the composers, talk to them. And that's kind of the gist of that recommendation. Okay. Can you give us a little bit more time? or? Yeah, I'm at your service, William. Oh, well, that's great. Thank <laughs> you. Appreciate it. You wrote the score for Dudes, which has been described as a punk rock western. And <laughs> what are the challenges in writing a score for a movie which has punk rock music playing throughout the movie? <laughs> Uh, you know, it is so interesting that you asked me about that. You know, I've done like 130 movies, and you, you asked me about dudes just an hour ago. I got an email from Daniel Schweiger, who writes the liner notes for a lot of these things, asking me if I had a copy of the music from dudes that maybe Entrada would put out a, a CD of it. And I just emailed him back and said, just before we spoke, you know, I said, yeah, I have the music. I sent it to Penelope Sephiris, who is the wonderful director of that movie, Wild. Only she could have directed that movie with punk rock and mythical elements and all of that. So that was an interesting... Penelope came over here. This was, God, years ago, 30-some years ago, whatever it was, and back in the 80s. She came over, and we kind of went through the movie. The punk elements were there. I had to find a musical language, talk about the key to that thing, that captured a little bit of mystical old Southwest again. You know, that Western kind of dusty cowboy hat world, also including Montana, but the Western part of country and Western that element, there was a chase in there that I remember, a really nice opportunity to, there was a good villain named Missoula, and I don't know, just offered all these interesting elements that the punk rock was what it was, so it was there. But one of the first cues I wrote, I remember doing something that had kind of a punk energy in it, 
mixed with this sort of mythical mystic cowboy thing, little touches of that Morricone Western, spaghetti Western element. Morricone is one of my great heroes. I just I don't can't say enough about Morricone as an inspiration and as a genius. So borrowing little touches of his iconic mythical Western element, and it was a challenge. The technology that I used was very, very primitive at that time. Sequencers were built into the synthesizers. My multi-track recording was done on tape. We didn't have the same advantages we have now with computerized multi-tracking, which is limitless. I had an eight-track, and one of the tracks was given over to Sumpty Time Code. So, you know, it was a very small multi-track environment. And I recorded almost exclusively in my home studio. So that was a real challenging, interesting picture. Maybe we'll have a CD of it one of these days soon. Cool. Could you discuss how American composer Roy Harris was a longtime helper to you? Well, Roy, a lot of people don't know the name Roy Harris. All composers know the name Roy Harris, people who are familiar with American concert music. But most people don't. And Roy was a contemporary of Aaron Copland and all the great mid-century or early century, actually, composers of the concert hall. Roy was a great concert composer, and he was teaching at UCLA in the graduate program on a kind of exclusive basis. And I was a doctoral fellow there, and I was able to have access, and Roy became my teacher and he was so encouraging and so unusual, and his ways of thinking were so kind of radical and just worked so well. He didn't really teach the music. He taught the spirit, or I should say he taught the music and not the notes. There's something I recounted in one of my books about Roy, where one of the things he used to say is, good music creates an expectation in the listener, and then it satisfies that expectation, but it satisfies it in an unexpected way. You know, that that's the way his mind worked. We had a wonderful exchange once where he recommended that I use an F natural instead of an F sharp in a composition. And he said, well, why do you want this F sharp? doesn't sound good. It just doesn't sound right. It should be an F natural. I said, you know, Roy, I know it doesn't sound good, but I needed it to be an F sharp because we're going to the key of B minor and F sharp is the dominant. And I just needed, he said, stop right there. Just make it an F natural and go someplace else. If you get the spirit of what he was saying is make everything sound right in the moment. And if it leads you somewhere other than where you were expecting to go, then change your plans. He was that kind of a guy, so I don't know if those two examples maybe give you a a taste of why I loved him. Okay. You wrote about this in your books, well, in the interviews, and just for those not in the know, uh, what is a temp track, and is it still a problem for composers today in Hollywood? Yeah. I wish it were more of a problem to composers today in Hollywood. People have adjusted to the temp track, sort of like boiling a frog. You know, if you put it in the water and turn the heat up slowly, the frog doesn't recognize that it's slowly boiling to death. It's just the way business is done now. Temporary tracks are entire scores to motion pictures that are put in on a temporary basis. They're taken from other movies. 
So when a composer comes on to a job, the editor and the director have already, and they actually, are, there's a profession now called temp track uh, music editors. So they now completely score the movie with existing film music and other music. And when you come in, they've already usually tested that score with uh, preview audiences. So the composer inherits a situation where everyone's in love with something they can't have, the temp music. And, uh, you know, it belongs from all these other films, and, you know, you can't really release a movie like that with that kind of temporary music. So usually the composer's told, okay, this is what we love. Now give us something as close to that as you can do without plagiarizing it. And that's not a real... None of the, I once asked John Williams, you know, what he thought of that, and this was a long time ago, too, uh, 25, 30 years ago, and John said, sometimes it's probably just better to approach something that's completely bald and naked, and you take it as it is, rather than having to conjure up something that's already been put in. I'm paraphrasing him, but in one of the interviews, he did mention this process. So temporary music or temp music gives the composer a good window into what the director wants, but it also limits the composer from experimenting. I couldn't have done a lot of these finding the key things that we talked about earlier if I had been saddled with a serious temp track, because I I wouldn't be looking for the key. I'd be looking for the clue to how to imitate this stuff without plagiarizing it. And now... There are composers who love temp tracks because it makes their work really quick and easy and it does all the heavy lifting before they get involved. And there are some other uses of temp tracks that are fine. Sometimes uh, the director says, I hate the temp music, but I'm just putting it in as a placeholder. That works for me, you know, it doesn't limit. And sometimes it actually does give you an insight into something that is really hard to communicate with words. So... You know, the temp track is highly controversial, can be a force for good or bad, but I have almost always found it to be an annoyance, and I'll throw in since he got me on a subject that I have some passion about. I think when I first see a movie, I don't want my first encounter to be with a temp track, and I usually ask, can we just look at this without any... And the director often say, oh, the movie won't sound good or won't feel good without music in it. And I say, that's fine. You know, just let me... Because in that emptiness, in that uncertainty, in that void, something will be born in my mind that can only be born once when I first see the movie and I'd rather not taint it with somebody else's version of how the music should be. So anyway, that, my two cents on temp tracks. Okay. You scored feature films, TV movies, TV miniseries, documentaries, and how do you approach them? Do you differentiate between them? You know, that's that's a good question. I, I'm winging it as we speak. I do feel somehow a difference between movies that are made for the small screen. I, this is a big controversy right now just at the moment in our business. Somehow, the lines are beginning to blur with uh, streaming media and all that. Movies made for this or that streaming entity and, you know, it turning up in theaters. Nonetheless, generally speaking, things that are 
made for the small screen, the home screen, let's say, and things that are made for the big screen, the public screen, tend to have different needs in certain ways. And I think the key that we talk about is a little different. Certainly in the old days when I was doing network long-form miniseries and movies for TV, the genre had a different set of demands musically, and I felt it very keenly when I would do a theatrical. It just it had to fill a different space in a different way, and I just feel a difference there. A lot of composers will tell you they don't feel it, but I do. Um, documentaries, same thing. I have some very dear friends who are documentarians, and they say there's no difference between storytelling in a documentary and storytelling in a fiction film. For me, it's it's a very different... Again, the key is different. I've done a lot of interesting documentaries, and documentaries advocate for a point of view of the filmmaker in a way that fiction films don't. And I think the composer has to be very careful not to editorialize, sort of like a newspaper where the editorial section is walled off from the news section. I think in a documentary, you know, the music is an editorial element, and if you handle it wrong, you make it heavy-handed. You, you weigh the deck, you, you know, stack the deck too much in favor of what the uh, filmmaker is trying to convince the audience of, and you become kind of heavy-handed. It takes on a propagandistic flavor when the music is pushing a point of view too hard. So a lot of subtle differences in these different areas that I, I haven't verbalized all of them, but I kind of feel them. Okay. What would you consider the crowning achievement of your film scoring career? Most people, when, you know, someone asks them, an actor, if you ask an, ac- an actor or someone, you know, what's your favorite thing? And they usually say, oh, it's like my children. You know, I have no favorites. They're all different and all that. I, I don't, I can't really claim that one quite. Um, there are some films that I just don't like and did my best with and some scores I feel that either because of the limitations that we spoke of haven't quite come up to standards I think maybe film scores that stand the test of time that work kind of well today the way they worked when they were originally intended those scores kind of feel good to me Uh, I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street recently at a screening with a QA. and a and I thought, gee, you know, this this music works for me, and it's been quite a long time. I'm not saying that with any egotism. I mean, a, a lot of scores of mine I don't feel that way about, but it, I felt, yeah, this is serving the picture. Uh, it's working for me as an audience, and if I hadn't written it, I'd say, yeah, this is working. So Elm Street feels like it stands the test of time. I haven't seen Majestic in a long time, so I'm assuming that would be one of them. Anytime I have seen that movie in the distant past, I've felt, wow, I, I like the way this is working. It feels good to me. So I, maybe those early movies, a silly movie like Love at First Bite, silly dated comedy, but I, I always laugh and kind of have a good time with the music. It was sort of in the disco era. I think I could maybe come up with a dozen that kind of feel like they've stood up for me okay. But nothing is like the crowning achievement for me. 
the career is kind of like a process, and I'm always thinking I'm just now starting to get the hang of it. You know, I, I feel like I, I'm just on the cusp of learning how to do this thing, but I'm not quite, you know, just pushing against that edge. So I, I can't really fall back and say something feels like a real crowning achievement. You wrote the score to Gator, and Jerry Reed wrote the main title song. And I'm curious, did you two kind of collaborate together on the theme? We collaborated, but not in that sense. It was sequential collaboration. He did his thing, and then I came in and did my thing with his what he had done. So it was that kind of collaboration, rather than the two of us sitting down. I'm a big fan of Jerry Reed, that theme that he did was so lovely and and I enjoyed arranging it and working with it and integrating it where I could and Gator was a very very different experience from White Lightning in the sense that Bert had directed it Bert Reynolds and my role in Gator was very different from White Lightning White Lightning was much more involved as a composer and in Gator I was kind of working with more elements that wonderful kind of swamp thing in the beginning. And I was given certain things to work with more in Gator. But Bert was, uh, you know, a lot of fun, and it was exciting working on that uh, on Gator. By the way, a little aside, there were some rhythms in Gator that later became early hip-hop rhythms, but at the time that I used them in Gator, they were not. There was no hip-hop. It was 1975 or something like that. And so I found it amusing that a lot of hip-hop artists in the 80s started pulling from Gator for samples because it had that you know, the swing 16th notes with even 8th notes is the technical term. So I just found it interesting. There's a bunch of hip-hop tunes out there that have Gator couple of different cues from Gator as their uh, sample base. So Interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to ask, this will be the final question, and I want to ask you the question that you asked Jerry Goldsmith. What would you be doing if there was no film industry to employ composers? Uh, gee, did I ask Jerry that? Yeah, it was the final question in the interview. Wow. Do you happen to remember what he said? I can look it up. But, uh... Yeah, I mean, I've got the book right here. Just a second. Okay. <laughs> His answer was swift and clear. I'd still be writing music with or without films. It would still definitely be music for me. Interesting. The reason I find that particularly interesting and that you should remind me of it right now is the article I'm currently writing is on that subject. It's an article about film composers writing concert music. Uh, in other words, music away from films. In answer to your question, by, right now I find that we're, by the way, in a renaissance where film composers are writing absolutely spectacular concert music. And I mentioned Jerry as one of the previous composers in this category, which is why I was interested in your finding that answer. You know, there's guys like Bruce Broughton and Jeff Beal and John Powell and Aaron Zygmunt. These guys writing just terrific concert music. Now, in answer to your question, I would not be one of those. I would be writing for the theater, 
which was my first inclination. I, I'm more interested in storytelling than I am in music per se. And I've always found music as a tool in storytelling to be fascinating. But I'm a great fan of concert music. I just couldn't love Beethoven more than I do or Bach, Mozart, you know, the wonderful old concert music and the new concert music. But I'm not interested in creating it because I'm quite satisfied with the guys who do it way better than I do doing it for the concert hall. But I feel like finding the connection between human emotion, human inclination, human motivation, human physiology, all of that connected to music to be where my interest is more than in the pure music as a writer. As a listener, that's not true, but as a writer. And I kind of saw myself, I write lyrics, I write words, I write fiction and so forth and nonfiction. So I always saw myself as headed for Broadway kind of thing. Stephen Sondheim was my idol, writing words in a quirky way that evoke and move drama and story. So I would say I would probably have veered where I was originally pointed, which is I used to call myself a man of the theater. I just felt like I was kind of destined for theater, but there was no way of earning a living there, so I just kind of veered into the closest thing, which is storytelling, music, and drama in film, and I've been really very satisfied in that, in that realm. I would like to thank Charles Bernstein for granting us the interview. Remember, Mr. Majestic will be shown Saturday, March 9th, at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium. Today's music is from Mr. Majestic by Charles Bernstein. <laughs> ¶¶